want to look into uh, Romans 1, 1 through 8, I'm going to, or excuse me, 1 through 6. I'm going to read the passage and then have a word of prayer. I'm excited to preach this passage. It's uh, one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It seems like I say that a lot. Um, but this is particular deep meaning for me because it sets the stage for the truth that Paul is going to continue to explain the power of the gospel. It's so packed, we're not going to be able to even scratch the surface and do it justice this morning. But it's rich, it's empowering, it's the most important truth in the world. Let me read it. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have a text that is packed with truth that breaks chains, truth that brings fallen men to a holy father, truth that declares the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, truth because of which we're seated here today, the truth of the resurrection. Lord, I thank you for this passage, and I thank you for the gospel. There is no other way. There is no other cure. There is no other salve, no other medicine, no other balm for healing. There is no other surgery that would make a spiritual heart alive. It is the gospel... It is the gospel of Christ alone. I pray that it would be spoken clearly this morning. And I pray that through it, because of its power that is in it, you would move hearts to you. We thank you for what you'll do through this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lee Strobel was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, trained extensively in legal issues and also in journalism, as you can imagine, to be uh, at that position at the Chicago Tribune. And he writes this, It was the worst news I could get as an atheist. My agnostic wife had decided to become a Christian. Two words shot through my mind. The first was an expletive. The second was divorce. I thought she was going to turn into a self-righteous holy roller. But over the following months, I was intrigued by the positive changes in her character and values. 
Finally, I decided to take my journalism and legal training and systematically investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity. Maybe I figured I could extricate her from this cult. I quickly determined that the alleged resurrection of Jesus was the key. Anyone can claim to be divine. But if Jesus backed up his claim by returning from the dead, then that was awfully good evidence he was telling the truth. For nearly two years as an atheist, I explored the minutiae of the historical data on whether Easter was myth or reality. I didn't merely accept the New Testament at face value. I was determined to consider facts that were well supported historically. As my investigation unfolded, my atheism began to buckle. Was Jesus really executed? In my opinion, the evidence is so strong that even atheist historian Gerard Ludeman said his death by crucifixion was indisputable. Was Jesus' tomb empty? Scholar William Lane Craig points out that its location was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. So if it hadn't been empty, it would have been impossible for a movement founded on the resurrection to have exploded into existence in the same city where Jesus had been publicly executed just a few weeks before. Besides, even Jesus' opponents implicitly admitted the tomb was vacant by saying that his body had been stolen. But nobody had a motive for taking the body, especially the disciples. They wouldn't have been willing to die brutal martyrs' deaths if they knew this was all a lie. Did anyone see Jesus alive again? I've identified at least eight ancient sources, both inside and outside the, Old Test- the New Testament, that in my view confirm the apostles' conviction that they encountered the resurrected Christ. Repeatedly, these sources stood strong when I tried to discredit them. Could these encounters have been hallucinations? No way, experts told me. Hallucinations occur in individual brains, like dreams. Yet, according to the Bible, Jesus appeared to groups of people on three different occasions, including 500 at once. Was this some other sort of vision, perhaps prompted by the apostles' grief over their leader's execution? This wouldn't explain the dramatic conversion of Saul, an opponent of Christians, or James, the once skeptical half-brother of Jesus. Neither was primed for a vision. Yet each saw the risen Christ and later died proclaiming he had appeared to him. Besides, if these were visions, the body would still have been in the tomb. Was the resurrection simply the recasting of ancient mythology akin to the fanciful tales of Osiris or Mithras? If you want to see a historian laugh out loud, bring up that kind of pop culture nonsense. One by one, my objections evaporated. I read books by skeptics, but their counter-arguments crumbled under the weight of historical data. No wonder atheists so often come up short in scholarly debates over the resurrection. In the end, after I had thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. And that's why I'm now celebrating my 30th Easter as a Christian. Not because of wishful thinking, the fear of death, the need for a psychological crutch, but because of the facts. And it's the facts that I'd like to direct you to in Romans chapter 1 here this morning. If that historical event really did occur, then what does it mean for life? We're watching a world 
that is wrapped up in a decaying fabric, unraveling very quickly. Even this week, we saw the events that occur with the depravity of the human heart. Sure, we have government and we have elections, and they can make laws. They can make administrations. But the decaying fabric is outside of a law. It's in the heart. Our biggest problem is a spiritual problem. And 2,000 years ago, a man named Paul, that Saul who was referenced there, who saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, Syria, was changed by the gospel. And he knew that in his setting, in the most powerful empire at that time, the Roman Empire, that it was more powerful than the Roman army itself. Paul understood there was only one answer. He understood there is only one cure. He understood there is only one hope. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was so sure of this that he wanted to go to the center, the nerve center of the Roman Empire, Rome itself, and proclaim the gospel of Christ. He wanted to go to the center, the nerve center of the Roman Empire, Rome, not to boycott, not to picket, uh, not to uh, protest as a Roman citizen, but he knew the only hope was to go to the Roman Empire capital, Rome, a Roman city, to declare the gospel, which is more powerful than any of that. You see, the gospel, he understood, if it was received, explodes and changes hearts. The gospel, what is it? It's a good news about deliverance from the wrath of God through God, Jesus Christ, for God's glory on behalf of man. There is only one hope for the Roman Empire, and there is only one hope for the world today. Only hope for the nations and all the world. Romans 1, verse 1. I'd like you to notice this first verse. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. First of all, I'd like you to notice the source of the gospel in verse 1. The gospel of God. The gospel of God. Paul here is only a messenger, he's saying. This is a message that has been passed on from the God of heaven down to earth. This is not a, a message that was, that was put together by the best theological minds. This is a message from the God of heaven himself. It is his handwriting. It is his architectural work. And no paid solution could solve the spiritual problems of the human heart. This had to be begun by God. So Paul says, Paul is servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. That is its source. But notice in verse 1, he says, separated unto the gospel. Not separated unto a gospel, not separated unto one of the many gospels. He says separated unto the gospel of God. Why is that important? Because here we have what is shaping with the uh, cultural assumptions of the day. We have the exclusivity of the gospel. There is one gospel. 
There is, and it is, this is not as if there are many ways to salvation. There is only one way of good news. There is only one solution. There is only one Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father through any other way except through me. There is salvation in no other name. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There is no access to God but through Messiah Jesus. There is no plan B if plan A, the gospel of God, doesn't work out. It is the gospel. Look in verse 9. Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I am served with my spirit, and the gospel of his Son. Verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation of everyone that believeth. It's exclusive. The gospel. And you would be hard-pressed to find anywhere in the New Testament where it doesn't say the gospel. The good news. Well, what is the gospel, the good news? It is the news of Jesus Christ, but it's begun far back before you and I. It is the gospel of God. But it goes further back. Look what he says in verse 2. Which, the gospel of God, which... He, God, had promised afore or beforehand by His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What is He saying here? God promised beforehand by His prophets, those who wrote the Word of God or proclaimed the Word of God out, the Old Testament and the Scriptures. But you promised beforehand. In other words, there is a continuity of the gospel. The gospel is ancient. It is timeless. It is not a new message. It is not a, a, a second try after a first failure. No. It is a gospel that in, in, before Christ looked ahead, looked ahead to a promised Messiah. And then when he came, now looks back at the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. It is not a new message. It is a proclaimed thrust of history from the Garden of Eden to the last page. Jesus. Israel and their practices and the priests were a shadow of the gospel in Christ. There is no new way. This only comes through the Messiah, which he promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Folks, there are many roads, many roads that lead to hell. There's only one road that leads to life with God. And it is the gospel that was promised beforehand. The gospel that we've now received, Jesus Christ. But look in verse 3 through 5. Here we have the subject of the gospel. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the subject of the gospel. Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what it concerns. The gospel, the good news concerns this. Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made after the seed of David according to the flesh, 
and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Here we have the subject of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the sub and the substance. Here's the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. There's no gospel outside of this. It is a person. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is, first of all, a person. It is news of a person before it's a plan. The plan of the gospel speaks of the person. It is crystal clear that what the gospel is, is first of all, who the gospel is concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here you have the person of Jesus Christ as the subject of the gospel. He is fully God. He's declared to be the Son, the Son of God, the eternal Son of the, li- <clears throat> of the living God, co-equal with God in His glory. He's also fully man. Look what it says here. <clears throat> His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David, of the seed of David according to the flesh, He was not only eternal God, but through the virgin birth, He became man. The God-man. His humanity, through the incarnation, was born in the flesh. He became like us. He was the descendant of a real historical man, David. He had all the credentials of the promise, of the prophetic promises of Messiah. But notice, between the truth that He is God, the Son of God, and the truth that He is the Son of David according to the flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord, God, man, Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. What does that mean? A mediator is one who stands between two parties that are at odds with one another and tries to bring them together. And the truth of the matter is because of our sin, we broke contract. We broke covenant with God. We, we, we are, are, are fallen. We are separated from God. Our relationship has been, has, has been broken. We are not reconciled with God. We're broken. But Jesus Christ steps in as the God-man, the mediator, who can fully, because he's God, represent God to us. And because he's man, can represent man to God on the basis of his work on the, on the blood of the cross. There's this person, fully God and fully man. But notice the proof. The proof. Look what verse 4 says. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Here's the proof. That word declared is a powerful word. It's a word that in other places has the idea of a horizon. If you were to go in your boat, go in the the Penobscot Bay, go out far enough away from the islands, you could see the horizon, couldn't you? Where the sky meets the sea. The horizon is, 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 is a marking there. And what it is saying is Jesus Christ is the horizon. He's the unmistakable. He is the authenticated. He is the validated. He is the verified Messiah. He's been marked out on the landscape of human history. That, that the horizon where the sky and the water meet, He is where God and man meet. Declared, validated, authenticated. When he was here on earth, his glory as God was pretty veiled, wasn't it? So how was he declared to be the Son of God with power? Look at the phrase there. According to the Spirit of holiness, by the work of the Holy Spirit, 
by the resurrection from the dead. How is he validated? How is he verified? How is he authenticated? By the resurrection. Friends, Buddha is dead and is buried. Confucius, dead and buried. Brigham Young, dead and buried. Joseph Smith, dead and buried. The succession of Roman popes, dead and buried. Muhammad, dead and buried. Mary Baker Eddy, dead and buried. George Armstrong and other cult leaders, dead and buried. Jesus walked out of the tomb with the keys of death and hell. And this phrase here, when it says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, is saying that Jesus is God's Amen. And how was he raised from the dead? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one that caused Mary to conceive as a virgin, that filled Jesus, that empowered him in ministry, also raised him to life. The proof of the gospel. The resurrection. But look again, back up. Here in verse 3. The name of Jesus. If the gospel is all about Jesus Christ, our Lord, then what in the world is the gospel all about? Well, Jesus is his earthly name. Jesus would be the Hebrew name, Yeshua, Joshua, we would put in our English terms today. And it simply means Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus is his saving name. Jesus is the Savior. But what about Christ? Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the one whom God set apart to be the Savior of the world, the anointed one. And Christ is his strong name. He was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit of of God on, 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 on him to finish the mission, to go to the cross. But there's a third name here. And this all these names really sum up the essence of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. Lord is his sovereign name. It's his name as master, as ruler, as king. Lord. Every year, if you were a Roman citizen, at least one time a year, you would have to acknowledge and say verbally that your Roman emperor, Caesar, was Lord. A Christian could not do that. Jesus was Lord. And those three words, Jesus is Lord, became the mantra of the Christian movement. Up to martyrdom, horrible persecutions and torments. The early believers would not say Caesar is Lord. They could only say Jesus is Lord. And why does Jesus as Lord seem to be the hardest one to say? Because it's acknowledging his rule, his master role. That he's the king of kings. And if he's king of kings, he has first claim on my life. The Bible says in Philippians 2, near the end, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. That was a name that was given to Jesus above any other name. Lord of all. Lord of all. This is the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. But look with me in verse 5. He says, by whom? By Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Lord. By whom we have received 
grace and apostleship. Paul could say that in his role as an apostle, one sent forth by God with special authority there in the early church, he received that position from Christ. And we can't say that we ourselves are apostles. We can say in an application that we're set forth by God uh, because he sent us to make disciples of the world, but not in the way that Paul could. But we do have something in common here because Paul says, by whom we have received grace. Grace. And verse 5, you have the provision of Christ. The provision of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus Christ is the source of the river of grace. There is not a drop of God's unmerited favor, God's grace, God's empowerment that comes to you except it has come through the river of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is a river of grace in, in our saving, and our sanctifying, and our serving, and our strengthening, and our sustaining, and then at the end of our days, our dying grace. He is the river of grace from God, the throne, from God's throne. John says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life but abides in death. Jesus, the promised one, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, chose the cross for your sin to pay, walked out of the tomb alive three days later and ascended. Jesus is the provision by whom we have received grace. Grace. What is the demand of the gospel? What is the demand of the gospel? Look further on in verse 5. Paul says, For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Here's the demand of the gospel, obedience of faith. In other words, the gospel delivers us. It's not a suggestion, it's not an option, it's, it, it's not a, uh, a, uh, something that, that it, it's, it's even more than, than, than the free offer of grace. It is a free offer, but it's more than that. The gospel is a command. The gospel is a command. God has commanded all men everywhere, Paul says in Acts 17, to repent. The gospel is a command. It is not just a free offer. It is a command to take the free offer. It is a command. Rejecting the free offer is not a neutral thing. It is a disobedience. It's a command from God that demands that you and I turn from our sin to the only hope, Christ. For you. It demands our faith. It demands submission. demands allegiance. As, as we sing here in this song, the, 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 the cross demands our life, our all. And faith is a loyalty here, a true belief, a trust. It's not a passive thing, like, okay, just a nebulous faith, whatever that means. But it's an active thing. It's a stepping out. On the foundation of Christ. As an act of the will. It is entrusting my life to Christ. For his payment in my behalf. And following Christ for the rest of my days. It is not living under my agenda. The gospel doesn't save us to do that. The gospel saves us to live under Christ. And it begins when we first trust Christ. 
We do not earn Christ by our obedience, but a life in Christ produces obedience. Turn with me a few chapters over. We're chapter 6 of Romans. Paul will say to now believers who have accepted the gospel, he will say in verse 16 of Romans 6, Know ye not? I mean, don't you know this? He's saying if you have two brain cells that can rub together, Paul says you ought to know this, that to whom you yield yourselves, yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey. Whoever you obey, whoever rules over you, you're their servants, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Look what he says in verse 17. Thinking back to the gospel, Paul says to these new believers, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but that ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. You see the obedience of faith there? What does it mean? Oh, everyone here today is a slave of one or two masters, the Bible says. Say, I'm not a slave of any master. Um, Yes, you are. The question is, who is your master? Uh, Whichever one you are submitting to and living for yourself, you're a slave to yourself. Or if it's a slave to Christ, you're either a slave to your own sinful desires or you're slaves of Christ. One leads to misery and discontentment and destruction and hell. One, Christ, leads to joy and satisfaction in life. And God, when he saves an individual, gives them a new heart that is alive to God, desires God, walks with God, that is planted in truth, to walk in truth. So that's why Paul can say in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, We have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Here is the demand. The question is, is your life in line with God's truth and His word and eternal life for your good and God's glory? Have you come to salvation? And is your salvation a real salvation? Not only that, but look what he says following here. What kind of faith? Faith among all nations. Here's the scope. Among all the nations. There's not a human being who does not need this message. Including the one standing before you today. Because if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, then all need Christ. From the pinnacles of society to the dregs of so-called dregs of society. Psalm 96.10 says, Say to the nations, the Lord reigns. Matthew 28.19, Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. Luke 24.47 says that you are to go to all the nations and preach the forgiveness and pardon of sins, repentance through his name. The scope is all of humanity. If you are part of a nation, you qualify. All of humanity is available to all. Look at the purpose. Why? Why? Why the gospel? What's the purpose of the gospel? The answer is for his name, and it means for his name's sake. What does that mean? 
It means the motive for God's gospel is for His glory. It's for the sake of His name, for His glory. For the glory of God. That there is one more saved in walking with Christ for God's glory. That the thrill of the glory of Christ is the motivation for sharing the gospel. If we are saved by Christ, then we serve Christ for His glory. God desires not to just have hearts that, are, that, are, that have been, uh, been born again just so they continue on in their own way, but hearts that have been born again to live for His glory. The gospel is for the glory of God. And if we uphold the gospel, church, and believers here this morning, we're upholding the glory of God. Because 2 Corinthians 4 lets us believe that the gospel and the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is where His glory seems to be most clearly displayed. The thrill and glory of Christ is the motivation. As I close here, I want you to look at verse 6. Because this is exciting. Because Paul says to these people... People in a, in, a, in a corrupt empire. I mean, you think things are bad now when they are. But you do not have the stuff in your face quite yet like people in the Roman Empire did. And Paul says this in verse 6. Among whom are ye also the call of Jesus Christ? You know what he's saying here? The gospel works. The gospel has power. The gospel took people who were dead in their sins, who were blind, who were groping in the dark, who were dead, who were diseased in, in, in their hearts. And the gospel brings them and washes them in the blood of Christ, takes the penalty of their sins, has put it on Christ, and has received their righteousness, and now they are the bride of Christ, wearing His robes of righteousness. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Called out. Called out. Here is the success of the gospel. The success of the gospel. The gospel is not a maybe, if, and, try some other thing. thing. No. God's behind it. It is sourced in God. It is for His glory. It is through the perfect Son of God, the perfect representative. And the gospel will triumph. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus has not died and risen and ascended in vain. Jesus will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He did it even in the corrupt Roman capital of the empire, Rome. The world is certainly quickly unraveling. It's in a death spiral. It becomes more and more obvious each day. And the world gropes for all kinds of answers and accords and treaties. Folks, there will be no lasting hope that is not found in Christ. The world is in a death spiral, but folks in Christ who have received this message not appear, but here. Christ and His people will live on. Christ and His people will live on. And folks, the Scriptures have foretold the Messiah. He has come from God, and He is Jesus. He died in shame upon a cross. God raised Him again from the tomb. He is now Lord at God's right hand. God has sent His Holy Spirit to work in hearts. And Jesus will come again at the end of history. 
And the application of the gospel is always this. Repent, turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. Born of a virgin, the son of David, died for our sins according to the scriptures to deliver us out of the present evil age. Buried, rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Is the son of God and Lord of the living and the dead. And he will come again as judge and savior of men. It's not popular. But it's the truth. So what's your application here this morning? Here's a few things. Are you alive in the risen Christ? Or are you the spiritual walking dead? Are you a spiritual zombie? Or are you alive in Christ? If you claim to be alive in Christ, then that means that your eternal sin debt has been transferred to the back of the Son of God. The Son of God has stepped in front of God's wrath against your sin, your whole, His holiness against your sin. And He has taken and bore that for you. And your sin has been transferred to Him. And His perfect record, His righteousness, will be transferred to your account by faith in what He's done. That's the Gospel. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Have you had that transferred through faith in His work? And thirdly here, is Messiah Jesus the Lord, the God-man, raised alive from the dead, your Master? Is He your Master? Is He your Savior? Is He your Master? They can't be one without the other. They're two sides of the same coin. Have you pledged your life to Jesus? Well, I don't know. Here's some applications. Very first step. Turn from your sin to Christ. Say, Jesus, I am a hopeless, hell-bound sinner without you. Everything else I'm putting my trust in uh, is, is like the reverse Midas touch. It crumbles. It always runs out. I come to the end of it. It's shaky. But Jesus, you're the rock on which I can stand because of what you've done on my behalf. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Become a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower, a learner of Christ. Walk in Him, walk in His ways. He gives His Holy Spirit to those who do, to live and help you. He gives us scriptures. He gives an access to God through prayer for help, for enablement and strength. He gives people around you, called His church, who will help you grow. Secondly, the next step after turning, repenting and believing is to identify publicly with Him in baptism. Because you're identifying publicly with Christ through the baptism, which represents the resurrection, the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and also His church. Identify with Him in baptism. Thirdly, commit membership to a Bible-believing church. If we walk in Christ, we're going to love what Christ loves. And the gospel moves us into a family. The family of God. Believers who have the same struggles, who aren't perfect. And the church is not a museum for the saints, is it? It's a hospital for the saints. And all the criticisms of the church is like you going to the hospital and saying, What's wrong with this hospital? There's so many sick people here. That's what a hospital is for, right? We're broken people. We need Jesus. It's very obvious. If you're around us very long, you'll see that's true, starting with right here. Commit to a local church and membership. 
a Bible-believing local church. We would love for it to be here. Fourth, love God by renewing your mind in His Word. This is the only thing that's going to help you navigate a messed-up world. The Word of God. It has ancient truths that have guided people from the beginning up to the modern age, the so-called modern age. Get in the Word. Build your life on the Word of God and not the world system. The world system promises much and delivers misery and destruction. Never satisfies. You'll try something, you'll, get, you'll, 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 you'll be happy for a while, and then you'll be back to where you were. The Gospel and Christ give lasting joy and satisfaction because it's found in something that's eternal, God. And fourth, or fifthly, <clears throat> invest your life in this message. Making disciples. 